text messages you send for official business on government-issued phones, they're official records. Now the Secret Service has famously lost hundreds of thousands of texts, it says because of a phone system switchover. The January 6th hearings were mostly about former President Donald Trump. For what the Secret Service might face legally, we turn to federal legal eagle John Mahoney. John, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And aside from the politics surrounding all of this, the Secret Service has a real legal issue on their hands. And let's begin with texts. Those, as I said, am I correct, are federal records under the preservation laws. Yes. Yep. And the Federal Records Act requires that federal agencies maintain accurately all federal communications records, including text messages and emails and correspondence and telephone calls, et cetera, et cetera. That's all the property of the United States and the, and the people of the United States. So the agency, the Secret Service, had a duty under the Federal Records Act to secure and maintain those text messages. Also under the Privacy Act, they had a similar requirement to maintain accurate records in their systems of records under the Privacy Act. And the violation of those statutes is potentially criminal. And there's no surprise to this. I think the email arguments and to some extent the text arguments go back to the Clinton administration when email itself became something ubiquitous in the federal government. And there were all the arguments over, can you print it and save it or save it electronically? Pretty much right. you got to save it electronically the way it was generated, correct? Yes, it's got to be saved in its in its inherent format, the, the format in which it was created and communicated. So the agent, the Secret Service had a duty to maintain those records. And I think the, the evidence has, has shown that, you know, the Secret Service did direct its its agents to back up and maintain those text messages and 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 that the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security's inspector general, had requested those documents you know, in the December, January timeframe of 2020, 2021. And despite the fact that the Records Act requires that they be maintained and that the Privacy Act requires that they be maintained on their criminal penalty and the fact that the IG requested them timely before they were migrated, quote unquote, into oblivion, the agency disregarded that. And, and the issue there is why? Why would you know, we've got an agency, the Secret Service, that has very important cybersecurity responsibilities in the national security world. And they're supposed to be experts at cybersecurity prosecutions and criminal issues. So I just frankly have a hard time believing that the Secret Service lost all of these text messages and that they can't recover them. I find it shockingly disturbing that if that, in fact, is true, that it was purely negligent and that they didn't mean to lose them all, especially when they were already under IG request. And I really think the end result is that the Justice Department Public Integrity Unit needs to start an investigation and have the FBI investigate the Secret Service as to what happened and why. And there's a timeliness issue here and a timeline issue. These were requested by the inspector general. Isn't an agency component required to comply with IG requests quickly? Yes. Yeah. They they most likely, I haven't seen the letter, but I'm assuming they had a very short timetable in which to produce these text messages. And they drag it out and they drag it out and they drag it out. And these, even as of last Friday, after they were under, under separate subpoena from the select committee to produce text messages, they were still basically juggling their response. We're going to produce these on Monday or on Tuesday. The last word from Secret Service was that they were going to produce these text messages come Tuesday. 
And then last Tuesday, when Tuesday rolled around, they basically admitted finally that they lost them and they couldn't recover. We're speaking with attorney John Mahoney, who specializes in federal labor and national security issues. And then given the fact that between the request from the IG and the long period of time before the loss was admitted, that the phone system transfer took place or the switchover, if someone were conspiracy minded, they would say they were simply dragging their feet till the switchover so that they could blame the loss on that. Not saying that's what happened, but it could look that way. It's pretty ugly. I think ultimately we've got secured communications from Vice President Pence's detail on January 6th, which shows that those those detail members were so frightened of what they were experiencing on the Hill that they were calling and messaging their family members saying they may not make it out alive. So we know what the vice president's detail was thinking and talking about. So I don't understand how suddenly the president's details, communications were disappeared. What about the individual phones? I know on my phone, I have text messages going back years and years with certain people. And so even if the carrier that I use merged with another carrier, nevertheless, on my phone, the texts exist for as long as I have my phone. And when I got a new phone, they all transfer to the new one. What is the reality is that DOJ and a criminal investigation, the FBI would have far more strong subpoena authority to subpoena those records from whatever the carrier is. I don't know what the carrier is for the Secret Service, but there is one. So the select committee really can't subpoena private corporations to produce evidence, but the FBI certainly can. So I think there are a lot of different ways for DOJ to get those text messages. I don't think there's going to be necessarily any great surprise in what uh, agents were talking about. I think a lot of that testimony has come out in the hearings from the select committee, but the issue that the missing link, and I think we're going to see the select committee look at this harder over the course of the summer into September and potentially DOJ as well, is was there some involvement by the president's detail in supporting the insurrection and that, is potentially troubling to the agency. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of issues involved. I mean, you don't, the Secret Service primarily is a confidential law enforcement agency for the president and, and, and his family and the vice president. And so the confidentiality of their communications between their protectee and their and the protective detail is pretty important from a you know methods and means law enforcement perspective. But when it comes down to whether their agents were complicit in a conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States, that's pretty serious business. So I think the select committee and DOJ need to get their hands on copies of those texts to see what they say. And I think what's going to happen is that someone's someone's going to have to pay at the Secret Service for these missing text messages, you know, whether it's political appointee or the agents who were involved with January 6th on the president's detail Someone's got to answer questions as to what, who did what and why. And that's going to be probably what the select committee will do over the summer because they didn't really have an awful lot of time to digest this before yesterday's hearings. Right. And in this whole dispute between Mogul and Celtic, which are the code names for President Trump and President Biden, suppose these records do come to light via a phone or some other source of the carrier. And if a given agent turns out that that 
agent's actions and motivations were pure as the driven snow, but nevertheless, the records were lost for purposes of the investigation. Is that agent liable for what happened on the server transfer, or is that someone else at headquarters dealing with the technology? Well, it's certainly someone at headquarters dealing with the technology. And there there was a memo that was distributed to Secret Service employees back in December of 2020, which basically said that they needed to maintain records related to the election results and, and the transfer of power, and that the agents the agents were supposed to upload or protect those records. So I think at the end of the day, management at the agency is going to say, well, you know, these agents didn't follow our directive, and they and therefore they should be disciplined. But at the same time, I think you've got you know higher political appointee level potential liability in terms of the fact that they they were negligent in how they processed and how they tried to protect these records. I think someone's, someone at the top is going to have to pay. And whether the agents involved were negligent in failing to follow the agency's policy to save the text messages, you know, they're busy people. They've got a lot, you know, they're protecting the president. So it's not like they're email uh, technology people. They're people with guns who, you know, protect sure. the president on a day-to-day basis. So that's not really their job. But ultimately, if there's a directive that says you've got to save these text messages and they didn't, then they're going to fall too. Well, I predict there will be a cache of emails about the text system because it's always the emails that get everybody. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> right. Attorney John Mahoney specializes in federal employee labor and national security issues. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it as always. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Visor, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations, you founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.